Pittsburgh Pub Scout podcast with me, Emily Einelander. And me, Corinne Kalaski. We're mapping the frontier between traditional and indie publishing. And today we're talking with Stephanie Argy. Stephanie Argy, she, her, is an editor at the International Society for Technology and Education, where she manages books that help educators use ed tech to incorporate art, creativity, and social good into the lives and work of their students. She also freelances as an editor for other publishers and organizations, and especially loves working on books about art, drawing, and painting, even if they often inspire her to spend her entire fee on art supplies. In addition to being a book editor, she has made award-winning movies, written about the art, craft, and technology of filmmaking, and Angel invested in women-owned social ventures. She has a BA in history from UCLA, an MS in journalism from Columbia University, and an MS in writing with a specialization in book publishing from Portland State University. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much. I am, I am very excited to be here following in, in very august company of my, my predecessors <laughs> on the show and, and, and not to mention my interviewers. So thank you. <laughs> well, we're going to hire you to do PR for us. That was great. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> awesome. It's always easier to always easier to talk about somebody else and say praise, extravagantly praise the good in them. Tell me about it. <laughs> someone was, uh, someone asked me to come onto a podcast and I panicked and it's like, I've been doing podcasts forever. And I was like, I don't have anything to say. I literally just sit here and ask other people stuff, but it's never true. It's never true. But Stephanie, um, now we're going to focus on you. Nice try. Um, um, so you have a very eclectic background. How did you decide to get into book publishing? Yeah, yeah, eclectic is a really good word for it. Um, I've been all over the place. So um, yeah, I, I was a journalist. I specialized in film and that kind of pulled me into filmmaking. So I made a number of movies and I traveled around a lot with them and they were all period pieces. They all involved a lot of research and it was, it was very, very thrilling to interact with audiences and to tell them more about what lay behind the movies. But there was always this frustration of, oh, I'm, I'm telling this to this small group of people and I wanna share it with everybody. And I was really frustrated by the narrow parameter of a movie. You've got this little two hour window and that's it. There's nothing beyond the edges that I can share even though I want to. And so I started doing a lot of research on, well, what could I do instead? How could I break through those walls and have a lot more information? Um, like maybe a movie, but it comes with digital books or I started playing with things and I would learn to code and was thinking about apps. And then I, I realized that there was actually a device that did exactly what I wanted it to, that was let you go all over the place and be really experimental and go down tangents and in, integrate all kinds of information. And that device was called a book. And <laughs> at that point, I thought, yeah, that I long form storytelling of that nature has been around for a really long time. I wonder if there's a program in this, not an MFA in creative writing, but really just making books. And so I started doing research and lo and behold, five miles from where I lived was the program in book publishing at Portland State. And the application deadline was about two weeks away. So I thought, yeah, what do I have to lose? I'll apply, pulled my stuff together, got in and then thought, oh, I guess I'm doing this. This will be fun. 
Um, and once I was in the program, I just, I, I loved everything about it. I loved my colleagues, uh, yourself very much included. Um, and the whole process, everything about it was so fulfilling in every way. So um, it was it was an odd sideways twisting journey, but it popped me right into publishing and um, it's such a nice match. And you succeeded me as the uh, digital manager for uh, Lilligan Press. <laughs> yeah, which was, um, you know, again, big, big boots to fill, but. Uh, <laughs> you did I exciting was, things after I, though. <laughs> I was, I was well, I was very well prepared. So mm -hmm. it, I, was it uh, apps or audiobooks that you worked on after I um, graduated or? Well, I, like I tried for apps. I tried. I was like, come on, gang, let's do some apps. And I looked back and nobody was after me. Um, and then momentum really started building around audiobooks right around that time. And um, there were among the students and among the faculty, there was just sort of this bubbling interest. And so I started doing research on, well, what would it take to begin an audiobook program that, that's part of the Uligan workflow? And so I did research on that and did kind of tentative um, contact with another department at PSU that was doing sonic arts and music production, um, just to lay the groundwork. And then I left, and I graduated as you do, uh, <laughs> but I've been keeping an eye on it ever since. And it's, it's growing, it's been growing each year. And last term I was a, you know, an alumni mentor for Paige Zimmerman, who's now, there is now a specific audiobook manager separate from digital. So I was really happy that, you know, I can do that. And I also taught an audiobooks class. How did you start working at ISTE and what attracted you to working there? Uh, well, in the program, we were all encouraged to do internships. And I wasn't sure what that would look like for me. But one day, the then director of the program, Per Henningsgaard, posted a message from ISTE saying there was this internship. And I was very much the digital person. I was really interested in all forms of technology and really focused on working with Emily in the digital department. And I thought, you yeah, know, society, technology, sounds pretty good. I'll try that too. And so I, um, I did the internship. I was there for, for two terms. And another big shout out to Emily again, because oh. I hadn't taken the eBooks course at that point, but Emily had shown me how to make an eBook. And in my second term working with ISTE, one of the things they asked me to do was, do a from scratch ebook for something that they need to turn around really quickly. So I said, okay, yeah, I could do that. And that was that. Um, and I took off the last term because I was writing my master's thesis. But right before I graduated, the um, managing editor, then managing editor, now director of books and journals, Emily Reed, another Emily. Yeah, uh, there's a lot cut. of us. Not, you're the best. Emily's are so awesome. And, and I as, agree. As are, as are Corinne. I'm not. Oh, thank you. Yes. And I'm a fan of Stephanie's also. So okay. well, thank you. Yeah. Good. A trio of great names. <laughs> um, but right before I graduated, Emily Reed got in touch and said, we have our annual ISTE conference coming up in Chicago. Would you be interested in coming along to work on it and then maybe doing some freelancing? And I said, well, that sounds, that sounds like fun. I'll do that. And once I got there, I realized that the reason they needed me was Emily was about six months pregnant at that point. And we're hauling boxes of books all over the place and doing all that. So 
I did that and it was great. And we all got along really well, so well that after we got back, Emily said, um, so I'm going to be going on maternity leave this fall. Would you like to take over all my books while I'm away? And I said, uh, sure, we can do that. <laughs> and I was really, I, I was excited, but I'd also never been on a books team at Ulligan, a proper books team, because my first term I was doing Write to Publish, which was a, an event team. And then after that, I said, I want to be the manager of the digital department. I want to just shadow Emily from this point on. So I'd never actually worked on a book team. But as a student in the program, every Monday we have those exec meetings and you hear a report. This team is doing this, that team is doing that. And every team is in a different phase. And as if by osmosis, I had it. So when I sat down to do these books while Emily was away, like, oh, I, I needed guidance. I needed the specifics to ISTE. But it was there. It was like Karate Kid, or paint the fence, polish the car. <laughs> wax on, wax muscles. off. Yes. Right. <laughs> and so Emily was off on, on maternity leave, and I did all that. And as the end of that came up, I was like, well, I'm, I'm really glad you're coming back soon. I don't want to go. And it turned out they didn't want me to go either. And so they created a position for me at the beginning of 2019. And I've been there ever since. Oh, that's that fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. I love and it. I, and I feel it's it's just been an amazing team that you know we had we were a team you know, there were two there are three editors. There's Emily Reed, Valerie Witte, and me. And until recently we also had a senior director of books and journals, Colin, um, who has since left, but Emily has now taken his place and gone become our director and we've all kind of inched up a little bit. So um, it's been it, it just an amazing collaboration, especially with, with Emily and Val. As it should be, you should be able to all grow together at the same time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, could you please put a finer definition on the word ed tech for us? Yeah, um, I, would, I would call ed tech learning with technology. Um, I think ISTE has been around for over 40 years. And so obviously everybody's relationship with technology has evolved greatly over that time. And I think at this point, we're, we're trying to separate from a specific term of ed tech. We still use it because it's very handy, but really we wanna think of it like an, just an integral automatic part of education. It's just a tool that you use. It's like, you wouldn't think of a pencil as being a special thing. Oh, we're gonna do some pencil work now. It's just a tool. So you wanna think about more what can be done with this rather than about the technology itself. Um, and I, I think there's also a shift in how um, we think about the positive or negative of, of ed tech or technology in general, that um, in the past there were a lot of don'ts. Like, oh, how do we keep, how do we keep these students safe? How do we block them from these websites? How do we, you know, a lot of negative connotations of what could happen with technology. Whereas I think now it's more um, looking at the positive aspect of what can we do with it? What can what richness can be brought to their lives as students or as people, as communicators, as creators, and 
that's um, so edtech or the technology that we use for learning uh, serves all of those things. And, and it can be anything. It could be websites. It could be apps. It could be you know, devices of any kind. It's such a broad range that. Yeah, yeah I love that more positive approach to it. <laughs> yeah, the only person who's going to be talking about a pencil is like a, a tool that one has to ponder is probably some kind of philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe, or maybe a, a, a an artist who just draws only in pencil. That's true. true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but even there, even there, it is, it is, it's a medium. It's a medium to serve that creative vision of the artist. And that happens to be what they're using. So maybe that's the way to think of it here too. But technology happens to be the way that people are learning or expressing themselves, but yeah. they could use other tools too. Not going to talk about McLuhan right now. <laughs> Corinne, if you want to do the next one. Oh, I do. All right. <laughs> Who is the client base for the books and resources you create and what types of institutions and what age groups use them? Um, our primary audience is educators in pre-K through 12. Um, so um, that could be teachers, it could be classroom teachers, or it could be administrators. Uh, a lot of our members are coaches. And so they are people who are working to help other educators use technology in a, a more fluid and productive way. Um, and they are, they're kind of amazing. We, we just did our first in-person ISTE conference since 2019. Um, last week we were in New Orleans and it's, you know, it, it's really easy sometimes to get very sad about our world and things that are going on, but it's very, hard to be sad when you're at the ISTE conference because you look around and you think, wow, there are over 10,000 educators who are here to do nothing but learn things to make their students' lives and learning better. And that is kind of an amazing privilege to be around and to serve. So that that's our primary audience is that group of educators. Uh, we've also been trying to reach into the higher ed world just a little bit, or not just a little bit, but but more for especially teacher training programs. And so for the next generation of educators, can we help them learn how to use technology in smart ways from the foundation of what they're doing, what they're learning? Um, and then interestingly also just are starting a effort to do some books specifically for kids. So taking some of the themes that are covered in our books for educators, but creating a version that would be for kids to actually use in classrooms along with materials for the teacher. So it might be something on digital citizenship. How do you conduct yourself well online? How do you treat others well? What are the values of doing all this from the perspective of a kid? So. That, oh. That's a brand new venture. Oh my God. Digital citizenship. We <laughs> all need that. Yeah, we, <laughs> yes, we do. Yes. True. Yes. <laughs> it's something that I, it's, it's funny because even though I work for ISTE and we have so many books on digital citizenship, I, you know, since basically 2015, I've been very, very scarce on any social media because it just is so you know, heartbreaking and I don't know, everything 
And yet, I do, I do question that in myself. It's something I wrestle with a lot about whether, uh, as just a citizen of the country and the world, I should be more of a contributor. Do we all have the responsibility or the ability to improve conversation? And if that's the case, if we can do any little bit of good, is that is that something we should feel obliged to take part in? Um, I haven't yet, but I do wrestle with it. <laughs> I think it's um, difficult to find a place as someone who is more forward thinking in terms and optimistic to find a niche online where you're um, appreciated by people who actually think rather than people who are like not just trying to perform smartness on LinkedIn. Sorry. <laughs> it's like you either have like the doomsayers on most social media platforms and then you have LinkedIn where people are being quote unquote authentic when they're not really being that at all. But I mean, you know, th that's why I love podcasts. I feel like that's one of the few places, um, you know, actual products of people's creativity, I think is a place where um, someone who is more optimistic about the future and the future of technology and the future of children might have a good, more comfortable, happier time um, expressing yeah. themselves digitally. Yes. And also, it's it's easier to communicate. We're able to have uh, a conversation and it's normal spoken language back and forth as opposed to social media where things are so easily misinterpreted or conducive to to going for the going for the joke, going for the, the thing, you know, will get cheap applause. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like snark wins I feel yeah. like on social media you know that's kind of yeah it's not a place for authenticity or it's really not so although the snark is fun sometimes I do I enjoy the snark yeah for someone who's really got a more optimistic perspective which I have to say I appreciate very much um it's uh yeah it's a t I think it's a lonely place to be sometimes social media so but, yeah but kudos to you for being able to be optimistic in this current you know state of uh the world that we find ourselves in so yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> please help us all <laughs> i was gonna say teach us how to be that way <gasps> oh. okay so um tell me tell us about some of the books and resources you've worked on uh, how do you as an editorial department decide which ones to work on um for example do authors approach you or do you seek out the authors based on topics you've predetermined and then yeah. what are your favorites Ah, my, my, no. Some of my favorite topics. Some of my favorite topics, though. Um, I'll start with acquisitions because it kind of flows yeah. into it. So we have a really fun and open acquisitions process. Valerie Witte is our acquisitions editor. And so the proposals and ideas tend to come first to her. Um, and some people she reaches out to directly, for instance, at the ISTE conference, she might go to a session and say, oh, that person had a really interesting thing to say. They phrased it well, maybe they'd make a really good as the author. Um, and we also do get proposals sent to us. So she screens everything and then she brings it to the book team and we talk about it as a group and say, well, you know, debate it, think about what it could be, um, give feedback. She'll often work with a prospective author to polish their proposal. Um, and then if we think it has promise, it goes through peer review. So everything that we do gets peer reviewed and we trust our educators because they are the people who are, they're researchers, they're people in the field. We try to match them really well to whatever the topic is so that they can bring their expertise. And if it gets through the peer review process and gets pretty good 
remarks, then we'll acquire it. And at that point, it it goes to its forever editor. Uh, we we divide them up and and get our projects depending on our our interests and skills and abilities. Um, and oh, favorites favorites is a harder question. Acquisitions was easy because that's a process. Favorites they're they're all so wonderful. Um, I'm working on a book now, which I'm so proud of. It's called Bring History and Civics to Life. And this was a this was an unusual acquisition for us. We have, a, as I mentioned, we have a lot of books on digital citizenship. We have a lot of books on coding. We have a lot of books on using the ISTE standards to integrate technology into a classroom well. Um, we didn't have a lot on history. And my original major was a history major. So when this proposal came in, I thought, oh, we got it. Oh, let's do this one. Let's do this one. But it was one that we really had to. Um, talk our, our the head of the learning division into a little bit because it's an unusual different audience history and teacher don't necessarily see themselves as an ISTE audience they don't see themselves as people who use technology which is all the more reason to have the book uh, but the two authors are just brilliant they're these, these two women who are both have a background as history teachers um, both have been you know have gotten so many awards as teachers and are just um dazzling and brilliant and funny, uh, Carol Lee Wong Nakatsuka and Laurel Aguilar Kirkhoff. Uh, so that's what I'm working on right now. And it it's, uh, just went back to its designer for final round of um, you know, corrections. So that will be coming out in fall. So I'm very excited about that one. Um, I've done a couple books, not surprising based on my background on movie making. Uh, so one called Movie Making in the Classroom was for teachers to help their students tell their own stories. So express their own lives and their, you know, talk about what's important to them. And again, just really wonderful author, um, great storyteller. I felt as an editor, I barely had anything to do with the book because it was so well crafted. Um, and then we had the, the kind of compliment of that one was a book called Awesome Sauce. And that was by a, a teacher in Kansas teaching other teachers how to make videos for their students, for their colleagues, for parents. And he's just a, a rollicking and funny guy that was great to work with. He does things like bring in films showing his evil twin villain brother <laughs> <laughs> and then creating like an airplane out of his classroom and welcoming students in as the steward. And you know, like, so it's a, it's super fun. Um, and Almost yeah. sounds like a cooking show, um, yeah. like how to make a cooking <laughs> yeah. show sort of thing. <laughs> it is. Well, that's why it's, it's awesome sauce. So each of his little videos that he talks about how to make is in the form of a recipe. So the little oh. list of ingredients, what you need, and you know how hard is this recipe? And uh, so we use the meta that meta cooking metaphor for that one. That's um, fun. And then the other thing I've, I've worked on quite a bit, um, because we're a larger nonprofit, we have other departments that can give us information. So our membership department had told the ISTE members about what would be helpful to them. And they were interested in little short pieces of information, things that they could use really quickly. So we started a line of jumpstart guides, which are basically just six paid laminated guides. And some of them are associated with existing books. And some of them are standalone topics that we think, oh, this could be, this could be fun. Just maybe it doesn't need an entire book, but let's do a jumpstart guide. And so we actually have one on podcasting, not that you need it, 
Oh, <laughs> it's, it's always good to learn more. <laughs> um, it's to help, you know, again, to help kids demonstrate their learning and express themselves through podcasting, which is so awesome. Um, yeah. So those are some of the things that I've worked on that have been so much fun. Oh man, if I had been given permission to like record my voice for p- reports as a <laughs> child, I, it would have been a nightmare for everyone but me. <laughs> <laughs> I was say, but a dream come true for you. Exactly. I hated my voice when I was growing up. And when I went to journalism school for my master's, we had to do a radio, one day radio workshop. And I thought, I'm going to put this off as long as I can, because maybe I'll get lucky and I'll die before it has to happen. Oh, we've all been there. We've all been there. And I didn't didn't die. So I had to do this workshop. Thank you. It was these two two women and they were just, they were just powerhouses. And they were like, you have to have it down to this time limit. It has to be two minutes or less. They'd come over and say, okay, here it is. It's four minutes. No good. And by the time we got through this whole process of chopping it down, chopping it down and editing and trying to make it still make sense after you've cut so much out of it, I completely forgot about my voice because I just so focused on what the material was. And it was probably the best editing class I've ever taken because I had to be so economical and cut out everything that was extraneous and make it all flow smoothly. So anyway, that was my, my befriending my voice moment. Oh, (laughs) yeah. When you have no time to think about yourself is when you make the best work. Exactly. All right. So ISTE has some progressive values in its approach to creating educational materials. For example, one of the books you've worked on is called Teach Boldly, Using EdTech for Social Good. Can you talk about what some of those are and how they're expressed in the actual materials and the approach to the work? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy that you, you mentioned teach boldly. I kind of saved that one for this question because um, <laughs> it's, that's a really special book for me. And when I was still, when I was filling in for maternity leave and we were doing acquisitions processes, this proposal came in and I just absolutely fell in love with the idea. And said, oh, how do we, we have to do this book. This is such a great book. And it was acquired and I was so happy and I was also so sad because my time with ISTE was about to end and I wasn't going to be the one to be able to escort it through the rest of his life. And then I got hired. And so I did get to have it. So this Teach Boldly was the first book that I was there for from its acquisition all the way through its completion. And it, um, again, our authors are just so amazing, but Jennifer Williams is the author of this one. And uh, she tells a story about being eight years old and hearing about starvation in Africa, and I have to do something, and just raising all, you know, an enormous amount of money for an eight-year-old that she then shared, and she's been that person ever since, and is just so engaged. Um, She founded, you know, she teaches, she has a classroom background, but she's also done all kinds of things with climate change, with helping found classrooms and schools in Africa, in, you know, all kinds of just so much work. Um, she, uh, the UN has a set of guidelines, the Sustainable Development Goals, and she created a movement, Teach SDGs, which uses those in the classroom. So, in the context of Teach Boldly, her book, that's one of the things that that she 
presents is this idea of kids want to find their purpose. So maybe you can give them a framework, maybe something like the SDGs can can inspire them. Oh, is it is it learning that you're interested in? Is it climate change? Is it hunger? All of these things are problems that need to be addressed. So what of these are you passionate about? And then in the same, you know, the, the next step in the book is, okay, so how do you narrow your options? This is a huge topic. What can you do when you're in environment? And then how do you organize your time in order to do it? So it's all sorts of um, get a, focusing exercises, but also um, practical ideas of how kids can use their abilities and their their time. She's very global in her perspective. So she has lots of tips on organizations that put classrooms together. So a classroom here could be partnered with a classroom in Japan, or I think the goal with a lot of our books is to make things accessible, to make them non-intimidating. And, and that's a great, a great example of, of how that works. Um, then we have other other books, um, some of which I've worked on, some of which I have, and uh, we have one on environmental science, and that one's um, lets kids examine environmental science issues through projects. So a lot of what we do is very project based. So it gives teachers the ability to say, oh, okay, I'm I'm interested in this topic. My kids are interested in this topic. Here's a project. Here's a lesson. Boom! I can just do that right now. Yeah, it sounds like um, breaking things down into manageable chunks. So these big problems that we all face in the world every day aren't just, uh, you know, staring all the kids in the face. The other thing that you know, I, I think I feel a lot more optimistic as a person working at ISTE than I, than I would if I didn't. Um, two of our, our very, very best-selling books are by the same two authors. The first book was called Fact Versus Fiction. And the second is a follow-up, even a little more hands-on and practical called Developing Digital Detectives. And they're both about media literacy and spotting fake news and evaluating sources. And they are hugely popular. These two books are so, so in demand. And that makes me really happy because yeah. kids are learning this stuff. This is so valuable. And again, it's it's that mix of grounding and practicality. and activities mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and critical thinking in the heightened way that we need right now exactly yeah critical thinking is runs through a lot of our, our books um, how can the books you create support educators and how can educators get the most out of them uh, well as I kind of hinted at earlier we really strive for a balance between theory and practicality so all of our books have a really solid grounding in, in pedagogy. As I mentioned, we do a peer review process for the proposal. We do another one once the first draft of the manuscript comes in. So they're actually peer reviewed twice. Um, so our, our the peer reviewers will give a lot of feedback on here's, here's some you know, educational principles that are here, some that you may have thought, not have thought about that maybe could also be useful. Um, so there's that grounding always, and that's very important to us that they're not just, you know, um, superficial books. Uh, there, are, there are books on education that are a little more superficial. We try not to be that. Um, and then there's that blend of practicality. Um, there, there was a moment, we did think an online conference during the pandemic pretty early on. And one of my authors, Tim Needles, who has an really fantastic book called Steam Power, 
was doing a workshop on integrating art into STEM subjects. And this one teacher who was in the conference said something like, just give me, just tell me what to do. Just give me one simple thing I can do. And they could hear the desperation in his voice in that, in that really extraordinary and you know, awful moment that teachers were going through. Um, and I like to think that, that the books offer that, that um, I think there needs to be a little bit of bravery on the teacher's part to, to not be afraid to, to be learners themselves and to try things that might be a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit unfamiliar and be blunt with their students and say, hey, we're doing this together. I, I think that helps. Um, but the goal is for any use of technology to not be one more thing. There's this dreaded notion for teachers. They're already doing 10,000 things all day, every day. They're so overburdened. We don't want this to be one more thing that they have to deal with. We want it to really integrate into what they're already doing. and. Um, serve the curriculum that they have. The, the book I mentioned, Bring History and Civics to Life, has a lovely section on how all teachers are innovators. They're already doing that every day. You've got a new student. You don't know how to teach that student. You're going to innovate to try and reach them. And so it's a mindset that already exists. It just needs to be translated to these other approaches and welcomed into whatever is already going on. And I think the the other the other value teachers can bring is interaction with their colleagues, um, and that's definitely encouraged. All of the authors are very available and open. They're um, unlike me; they're all on social media and they're really accessible, um, and they welcome conversations with with other educators and they give hints and they give help. But beyond them, coalescing around them is often a community of like-minded teachers and administrators and librarians and those people can be a support system as well so i think that's important to um for for people to to let the books let their own development connect them to others it's with everybody having the same problems so what sorts of topics are you curious or excited about when it comes to publishing and technology in general Oh, so many, so many. I, think, I just wanted to give you that open-ended yeah. question because I knew you'd have something to say. <laughs> Another three hours of, yeah, <laughs> we are, we're so lucky to be in a profession where everything is just so interesting. Um, but at times I feel like the dog is like chasing a squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. Um, it's everything that draws my attention. Um, I think top of my immediate list right now, um, I am really interested in international rights and translation, especially in the context of ISTE. ISTE's got that international, it's the first word in our name. And I would really like for us to um, broaden what we're doing internationally. And, and just I think in general, for all of publishing, books going back and forth between countries is just a marvelous and important thing. Um, because we, we can see our commonalities and we can um, gain so much just from that communication. So I'm very interested in, in doing more with international. Um, I'm also, um, a, a lot of our books deal with accessibility in the classroom. 
And I think accessibility in publishing is something else that we can all do a little bit better just to make it part of the process. To make it, you know, even in editorial, I, I think there are, we, we should just be always integrating our alt text whenever there's an image. We could just do that so easily. Um, it takes a little bit of forethought. It takes a little bit of change to the pipeline, um, but that's an, an important thing that I'm, I'm very interested in right now. Um, I think, again, connection and collaboration among authors. Uh, when we were at ISTE last week, we had a gathering for all of our authors who were on hand, and there were a lot of them. There was at least 30 of our authors were there. So we had them get together one night, and it was so much fun to see them communicate with each other. And they never get to meet, They're, they never even meet us. And to, to see them discover their common interests and their common experiences was really delightful. And so I think there are a few publishers I, I think that create a community among their authors. I think Barrett Kohler does something like that. Um, that's really interesting to me of how authors can support one another within a publishing company and then even just in the broader world. Um, and as far as technology, um, my, my infatuation with audiobooks grew greatly over the course of the pandemic. I think uh, that happened for, with a lot of people. Yeah, it did, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, I know it's pretty cliche. Um, I did the sourdough starter as well. Still have it going. Uh, <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> made bagels just today. So, um, but I, as, as you know, I'm I'm really fascinated by different forms. Different. We make real assumptions about what a book is or what a book can be, and I want to play more with the edges of that. What does it mean? And audiobooks. Some things in audiobooks that have happened that I found so fascinating. I, I don't know if you ever heard the audiobook, The Only Plane in the Sky. No. It's mm -hmm. an oral history of 9-11. And oh, it's, it's, first of all, it's, it's intense. It's really intense to listen to. But what's really fascinating is um, it includes a lot of performed pieces of actors reading commentary from those who were there, but it also includes recordings from that day and from later. Well, there's like Obama talking later on. There's George W. Bush talking closer to that time. There's, I, I didn't realize it until after I had just heard it. There is a stewardess, there's a, a bit from a stewardess speaking. And only after I read it, I realized, oh, that was a real recording of that person who was, and, I don't even know how to describe something like that. It's like, it's its own art form to have that realism combined with something that's performative, but transports you in this way. That's mind blowing. Um, and there's also Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell does some of that as well, where there's real footage that's incorporated, a real audio that's incorporated into it. Um, so I find that really inspiring, and I would like to see how else we can build on that, whether it's, you know, again, filmic elements, because go back to my, my heritage, um, or other kinds of, of literary presentation, but, but books, books are big, books are, 
expansive, yeah. expansive. Yeah. And what we, what we think of as a book can be really surprising. I would be very interested in listening to more nonfiction that has more of that artistic kind of expansive element that you're talking about, because what you're describing, I'm like, yeah, I listen to audio dramas and, you know, full cast recordings of, you know, good omens or whatever, but um, to have something that's actually about a real occurrence um, be presented in that way. sounds like something I need to dive into more of. So, yeah. 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 And I think we're in such an interesting time where so much does get recorded in different ways. It's, well, there's a lot of material to draw on that represents this historic moment in which we live, which is, um, every day Definitely. it's so yeah. historical yes yes <laughs> it's uh yeah it's like the, the 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 classic you know curse we we do live in interesting times mm-hmm. and if we all just um remember that there's room to play and room to experiment and not let ourselves get baked into narrow definitions of of what what books are what literature is what story is there's so much room for um, inspiration. I would encourage people to visit the EST website and you know explore, especially if, if people are educators or you know, or even if they're not. There's a lot to be gathered from from all of the books. A lot of inspiration. And I'm you have mentioned that you're not on social media so much, but do you have a website or a place where people can find you? Um, I do have stephanierg.com, which is sorely neglected, but uh, I'm inspired now to, I've been, I've been chipping away at it. Well, um, you can find us online at hybridpubscout.com, on Facebook, Hybrid Pub Scout, Instagram, Hybrid Pub Scout Pod, Twitter at Hybrid Pub Scout. And um, I, put, I did a LinkedIn profile now too, so you can find us there as well. <laughs> um, leave us a five-star rating and a review on your favorite podcast app. Uh, Thank you, Stephanie, for joining us today. And thanks for giving a rip about books. (laughs) 